Experience the most delicious, entertaining, and bizarre parts of life in the big city with New York Magazine's collection of podcasts, available exclusively from Panoply. Tune into the Grub Street podcast for restaurant trends that'll soon be sweeping the country. Catch exclusive interviews with the stars of your favorite TV shows with the Vulture TV podcast. And check out Sex Lives for intimate discussions of sex in the real city. It's like taking a trip to New York from the comfort of your earbuds. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Sex Lives, the New York Magazine sex podcast. I'm David Wallace-Wells, and with me today, as always, are New York Magazine sex columnist Maureen O'Connor. Hey, Maureen. Hey, David. And Allison Davis of The Cut. Hey, Allison. Hey, David. Um, we're actually recording from three different locations this week. So I, I was saying to our producer before, it, it, sa- it feels to me like we're on like a sex party chat line. <laughs> Is that what these they, those feel like? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know what they would feel like. I've never really believed that they existed, but like in the advertisement, <laughs> they're advertised as like, yeah, you pick up the phone and then there are all these like disembodied sexy voices on the line. Hey, singles, grab your phone, call Lava Life Voice and join the party. Record a greeting. Listen to profiles and exchange messages with hundreds of exciting local singles, all by phone. It's safe, sexy, completely confidential, and it's always free to call. Must be 18 years of age or older carrier or long distance charges may apply. (laughs) We'll have to um, call them up one day. We've got a great show for you this week, uh, but first we're going to remind you about the Sex Lives voicemail box. We end our episodes with your responses to stuff we've asked in previous shows. This week, we've got a particularly mysterious submission, which we're not going to spoil by talking about now. We'll save for later on. But please call us anytime, uh, however late at night, right when you finish your talk with Lava Line or Lava Life, (laughs) uh, at 646-494-3590. So we'll have some questions later, but also with any other anecdotes you'd like to pass along for broadcast. Um, coming up in just a minute, we're going to interview Dr. Jesse Baring, author of several books, including Perv, the Sexual Deviant in All of Us. We're going to be talking to him mostly about incest porn. Um, when I say we, it's going to just be me because with technical difficulties, we couldn't get um, Allison and Maureen on the line, which is sad because as longtime listeners know, we've been talking about talking about <laughs> incest porn for like a year now. But first, um, we want to talk about this data dump which happens every year in January from the website Pornhub, which I guess is sort of the clearinghouse YouTube-like site for all things porn. And they are super excited, as always, to tell us about everything they've learned about our desires by looking at what we're jerking off to. And uh, this year, Maureen, I know you were most excited to learn that in Italy people were super excited about foot fetish porn. Yeah, the only the only nation that is searching at a significant enough rate to like, you know, pull the make make a Pornhub notice for foot jobs is Italy. And I don't know, what is that? At first I was like, it must be the Italian shoe industry. They're just like very attuned to like the aesthetics of a woman's foot. It's possible. Or like that's how you make wine, you know, the traditional foot crushing of the grape. Pretty ironic, <laughs> baby. <laughs> I also like how Pornhub mentions, like, it's the boot-shaped country, as if, like, that's somehow related to their love of, of a foot job. It's just in the country shape. Yeah. How, how could you escape that? <laughs> in the DNA. We were also interested to see they had some data about the length of time that people spent on the site in different countries. They helpfully titled this section of their report, How Long Does Each Country Last? Um, and... <laughs> 
shortest duration country was Cuba at five minutes, 11 seconds average visit. It's kind of amazing that there are Cubans who are even visiting Pornhub, isn't it? Internet is like so crazy expensive in Cuba. People have to like move Go fast. fast, you know? They have other stuff to do online as well, but they, it's too expensive. Hilariously, all the way at the other end of the spectrum is the U.S. The average user is 9 minutes and 51 seconds, although that's actually not the top spot. It's the second to top spot. The top spot is the Philippines, who lasted fully like two, almost three minutes longer than the U.S., which is like probably like two standard deviations in this data set, 12 minutes and 45 seconds. Yeah, I really I really would like to see somebody um, explain to us like what, what the actual like porn browsing habits are in these countries like is it that it takes them three more minutes to find what they want and jack off or like it's just the buffering yeah yeah (laughs) why um although one thing i found really interesting that they pointed out was that from year to year so in america i believe um we're now up to like what nine minutes 51 seconds but the sort of like worldwide average is still sort of stays roughly the same year over year. And even as um, generally the amount of time people spend on the internet has expanded to, you know, like 5.6 hours a day or so, um, the amount of time on porn stays kind of like uh, roughly the same at this sort of like finite amount of time that we assume has to do with how long it takes you to find what you want to watch and get what you want from it, which we assume to be masturbation. It sort of it sort of defies that idea of like if porn's available, people will all be porn addicted and they'll just be jacking off all day long because in fact they're doing many more things online, but sex sort of stays finite in some certain way. Yeah, totally. I'm also looking at their they're like the most searched for porn stars worldwide and uh the top of that list is Kim Kardashian. I'm sure she'd be happy <laughs> to know that she was the most searched for t- porn star. But she she barely ekes out Mia Khalifa. It's like very very close. Yeah, that's the uh, the famous Muslim porn star. Yeah. By which I mean she's just a porn star, but she happens to be Muslim. But they do put that into her like storylines all the time. I think yeah no I was I was just talking with Allison. She was like uh, people start when she first came around. People were talking about the rise of hijab porn because there were like a couple of yeah. videos where she was wearing a hijab. Um, I'm shocked that there's so much My Little Pony porn being searched for in Russia, too. I don't know why that feels kind of like... I never quite understood, like, cartoon porn in general. Like, who are the yeah. people who are, like, watching The Simpsons porn or whatever? <laughs> Scooby-Doo porn is also on here a couple times. I just did a search for My Little Pony porn on my computer, and wow. <laughs> God, <Maureen. laughs> there's a lot of variety there. Did you use, like, an incognito window at the very least, so it's not in your history for all time? No, because, I mean, given, like, the, the only reason you'd ever not want that in your history is if you're like, I don't want to get in trouble with my job or whatever, and, like, that's been blown for me already. I've got no reason <laughs> to hide any of the things I search for ever. On their, their list of the top searches overall for 2015 in the U.S., Three of the top 10 terms, it looks like, are related to incest, which is what we're going to be talking about next. So stepmom is number three, or maybe even more, depending on how you count. Stepmom is number three. Mom is number six. Stepsister is number seven. Stepmom and son is like number 12, too. So it really is like all over the place, although I guess the major growth in that was last was last fall. Stepmom shower is a really specific one that apparently captivates many people. Stepmom what? Shower? Shower. 
it, I think it's like all the sort of like whoopsie. How did I end up in 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 this horrible situation, this very taboo situation? I was merely showering. So we've been talking about Pornhub's exhaustive tracking of its usage statistics. Next, we're going to speak to Dr. Jesse Baring about merely showering and all the things that happen <laughs> afterward. We're joined now by Dr. Jesse Baring, the author of several books, including Perv, The Sexual Deviant in All of Us, and an associate professor at the Center for Science Communication at the University of Otago, New Zealand. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Literally for a year since we started doing this show, we've been talking about doing a segment about the rise of incest porn. I guess that the end of 2014 into early 2015, there were a bunch of stories coming out of mostly like the Pornhub data dump um, that they do every year about um, how that quarter, the f- the last quarter of 2014, saw like a 100% or more spike in searches for incest-related videos. We've kept wondering what the possible explanation could be. And I wondered, first of all, if you've noted that, if you've um, thought about it, and um, if you have what you have thought about it. I mean, I think it's fascinating as sort of a, a general phenomenon. You know, what's incestuous for us, of course, is not um, the same when we're viewing other people engaging in that same behavior. So first of all, these are not people that we're related to when we're aroused and we see incestuous uh, types of relationships. But also, I, I think the fact that so many families are blended families, you know, you've got step-parents, step-children, uh, cousins, you know, all, all those types of things, um, that we don't necessarily have a biological aversion to is is probably contributing to the popularity of of this type of porn. But I guess there's also the the sort of old charge of incest as a taboo. I mean, the the choice of thinking of this variety of porn or this variety of sexual situations as being incestuous rather than something else is. I mean, I guess it says something about what um, viewers are desiring and how they want to see say the coupling of a stepbrother and a stepsister, which we needn't necessarily see as problematic, um, but we're sort of choosing to see it as problematic because seeing it as problematic makes it a little hotter. I mean, I think the taboo argument is part of what's driving it, but there are lots of things that are taboo in society that um, don't have that same level of popularity when it comes to porn searching. Um, You know, there are lots of things that are taboo that we just simply don't want to see or we're not attracted to. Incest porn doesn't seem necessarily to be one of them. In evolutionary biology, there's this concept called the Westermark effect. And this is found across many different species, including rodents, all the way up to to human beings across uh, uh, mammals. That when you are raised with another individual of your species um, from a very young age, up until about the age of, uh, you know, in human beings, at least three or four, you're just simply not attracted to them because you've been programmed through evolutionary means to view them as a biologically related relative. And it would be a problem to have sex with them and to reproduce because you're going to get all sorts of negative health consequences. But if you pass that critical, uh, that, that sort of window of time and, you know, you don't meet your... Uh, even if it's a biological sibling and you're reunited as a you know an older adopted child after the age of reproduction after you reach puberty, um, you don't you don't necessarily get that that early developmental input. Um, so you can see that person as a reproductive partner. 
incest porn, you know, I think a lot of it, it does deal with the sort of step parent, you know, MILF type of relationships that people find uh, provocative. Well, I guess there's sort of two broad categories. One is cross-generational. So stepfather and stepdaughter, stepmother, stepson. And then there's the sort of um, the single, you know, the single generation. Um, those seem to me anyway to sort of trigger different erotic dials. Do they seem that way to you? Yeah. Um, if you think about, you know, twin, twincest, um, that does seem qualitatively different than uh, the intergenerational sort of step parent, uh, stepchild right. porn. You know, when we think about, I mean, for me, it's it's a really disgusting thought to think about having sex with my sibling. And I would imagine that's the case for most people. Right. Um, but when we're viewing people that we are attracted to, and there are two of them, it's kind of a double dose, really, when you think about the, the arousal potential. Well, there's, I guess there's also the way in which watching other people perform sex acts that seem a little unseemly to us is also a signal of their perversity and their, therefore in some way a signal of their like willingness to do X, Y, or Z thing that may be beyond your own personal um, experience or even like normal desire. And that there's something yeah. hot about, about that sort of the sexual availability that it signals. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point, actually. And, you know, that could be part of it, that, that we view their their willingness to engage in that behavior as a signal that um, there's there's no limits, essentially, to what they wouldn't do, right. including us. Like you said, there are these different categories of incest porn. You know, there's the one case where you've got um, biologically related siblings like twins having sex. Right. There's there's lots of gay porn, for instance, where there are identical twins, male right. twins, mostly that have full anal penetration. Um, and you know, the interesting thing for with, with that case is that there's no obvious harm implied because there's no chance of reproduction. You're not going to impregnate the other the other person, and your offspring aren't going to have some sort of um, you know horrible mutations. Um, so the harm factor is removed entirely from that. That's you know, those types of cases. Right. I wonder if I could ask you to back up a little bit and tell us, you know, in the context of your work and your book, um, a little bit about how you see the relationship between taboo and desire, how the relationship between those things which we may have once seen as um, off limits have become more and more part of our um, sort, of, sort of sexual mainstream appetite. Uh, well, I think a big part of the puzzle is is the experience of disgust and disgust sort of operates alongside taboo. So when we think about incest, for instance, um, our normal uh, sort of biologically programmed reaction is to feel disgust. And disgust is like, you know, taking a cold shower when you're sexually aroused. It's, you know, it, it basically reduces dramatically um, your uh, sexual desire. Uh, so it's the antithesis of erotic, you know, when you're disgusted uh, by something, whether it's moral disgust um, or disgust about bodily products or something like that. Uh, it's really a turnoff. So I think for taboo to be for taboo to be effective, it's somehow got to eclipse or not trigger those disgust mechanisms. It's got to be deemed culturally wrong, but not gross in that sort of basic evolutionary way. Is it not reasonable for me as a sort of layman to think that uh, you know disgust is also the sort of flip side of desire that there's things are 
often so charged? Well, I mean, it depends. Uh, I mean, there, there are certain things like, you know, you're not necessarily going to be into scat play right. just because it's <laughs> Because shit is disgusting, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, if, if you're super, super aroused, what would normally be disgusting when you're in a, I guess, sort of a sexually sober state of mind is not going to be as off-putting. So, you know, the fact that you're, you know, the person that you're making out with has body odor, for instance, um, you can kind of get over that if you're super horny. Or even the opposite, it can become a thing that you're really turned on by. It could be for some yeah. people. It could be fetishized, absolutely. And I think that, you know, and the best research on the origins of um, fetishes or paraphilias, um, sort of abnormal types of or patterns of sexual attraction, suggests that there's a, especially in males, this is the case, that there's a developmental imprinting process. Um, so something happened over the course of early development where, um the object of your adult desire was tethered to or linked to some early arousal experience. Right. Like people with foot with foot fetishes, for instance, you know, they talk about, you know, when they were six or seven or something, they were wrestling with their uh, with their friends and the, you know, the person's feet flew in their face and they just happened to have an erection at the time. And from that point forward, you know, they were into feet or they were massaging their mother's feet or mother was their mothers were uh, moaning in pleasure. Um, and, you know, they just happened to um, from, from just sort of physical contact be aroused at that time. You know, it's kind of a done deal. Those stories are always so amazing to me. Oh, yeah. And they're incredibly interesting, I think. And, you know, the, the trouble is that we can't really do good scientific experiments on the origins of fetishes because you can't sort of take a random group of kids and expose them to, you know, sexually abnormal developmental encounters and compare them at age 18 to those that had normal uh, a normal upbringing. Also, it seems as though just about everybody is a sort of single case study. Even people who have quite similar fetishes came to them so often yes. in such idiosyncratic ways. Yeah. And, you know, they could be biased. You know, it could be just people, you know, adults trying to make sense of where their fetishes came from. And, you know, and the, the narrative could develop um, just because it's uh, imposed on memories and it could be more constructive than, than factual. Um, but there does seem to be this recurring trend that that there's a there's a there's an early developmental influence to what we are turned on by as adults. And do you see a sort of in terms of um, in terms of fetish, in terms of deviance, in terms of what we might once have called perversion, a sort of changing of the landscape over the last thirty or forty years as we've sort of liberalized sexually generally, or do you see mostly people's relationship um, to the things they're uncomfortable about themselves desiring more or less the same? I think we are changing in, in mostly a progressive, um, morally sensible fashion, uh, but, but, but almost begrudgingly so. It's more like our intellect is leading the way over our, our, our visceral um, emotions. So things might still disgust us, but we're able to, you know, reason our way out of our knee-jerk um, emotional reactions and disgust and aversion to to the question of harm. You know, is it harmful? You know, to me, that's the bottom line. Uh, and the crucible for what's acceptable or not acceptable is harm. Uh, and if you can't identify why something is harmful, then the onus is on you to explain why it's wrong. It's interesting to think that one of the um, factors leading to something like a huge rise in incest porn maybe are, you know, that we've gotten so comfortable with the idea of pornography that it's set off from real life that it is relatively speaking safe 
um, means that we can view a much greater variety of sex acts in that space and see them as harmless and therefore kind of comfortably hot. Yeah. And, you know, one one of the big questions, I think, when you're thinking about porn is whether we are, you know, whether whether Internet pornography, for instance, has created an audience that wasn't there already or whether the audience is just simply attracted to what they were always attracted to. And now they have an online venue um, to view that material. I think the evidence actually suggests that people um, were always attracted to these things and just simply seek them out um, as they become available. It's sort of outliers, erotic outliers, I call them. Um, simply attract what was already there. They just provide them with a venue or a forum um, where you find like-minded individuals. And it's impossible really to fathom the complexity and the depths of sexual diversity that are really out there. I, I, mean, I mean, and it's impossible not to offend people when thinking about uh, fetishes and paraphilias and what's weird and what's not weird. You know, even in my book, Perv, which I thought was about as liberal as you could possibly get, I offended lots of people. You know, I offended people because I, I use as an example those who were attracted to um, sneezing. You know, there's a case study that I came across uh, back in the 1920s where this, this guy was really into uh, other men sneezing in a particular fashion, right. like a sort of rapid, like fusillade of sneezes. And he found that really attractive, and he would have an orgasm when he heard other men sneezing and so on. And I, I kind of joked about it, that case study, because I thought that they, he was probably one in a million or one in a billion. Um, but, but then later on, I found out that there's a sneeze fetish forum where you know they were offended by the fact that I was sort of making light of their, their sexual orientation. And their pornography is just simply video clips of people sneezing. Amazing. And then, you know, a year from now, we'll be reading about how that's like the most trending search on Pornhub, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jesse, thanks so much for coming on. It was great to talk to you and I appreciate your taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm going to welcome back Maureen and Allison uh, to listen to this incredible voicemail. Hey, it's me. I was hoping we could get back together and try the old move. Connor. Is this, uh, is this someone one of you guys know? <laughs> that voice does not sound familiar to me at all. No, you missed the call. <laughs> <laughs> um. No, that doesn't sound familiar to me either, and it doesn't have enough signals in it that I could think of who it would be. Although, I mean, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily doubt that maybe it is someone I know. It's just that it was really brief, really. I want there to be so much more. You want to hear more about the old move? You know, doesn't try the old move sound like someone who has never had sex, like something that someone <laughs> would, who's never had sex would say about having sex? Like, do you ever do you ever think about your sex life and think like about the old move? <laughs> that one move. <laughs> Um, is this person like trying to trick one of us into thinking we had an old move with him and like we'll just revisit this this person anyway? I don't know. Our sexual history is extensive enough that maybe we've forgotten one old move. I guess it might work if you recognized who it was, right? I, well, now that I think about it, I can't think of any time that I've had a specific move. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. You've got you got to have like a signature, right? No, <laughs> really. <laughs> What's your signature? Like, 
No, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna share the Allison Davis. But isn't but, the, isn't the suggestion of this guy that not not that the person has a signature, but the relationship has a signature, and then you have a different signature in every relationship? Well, too, like who has that much like time to develop a new signature for every relationship? I think like people have a, like a limited encyclopedia of moves they're comfortable with, right? I don't know. Well, I guess you could you could also jointly gravitate towards something that you just know like gets each other off every time. I think right. I think if you introduce a new move to your lexicon with somebody, then that's always kind of like your thing. You know, the times you're like, "Whoa, never tried that. Neither did I. Holy fuck, we like that." And that becomes like the old move, I'd say. <laughs> you said you said the old move, I'd say, like such a like film noir girl. <laughs> <laughs> Nice well, I'm trying to use the vernacular we've established in this segment, but uh, that didn't sound like any of my people that would have an old move. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, you can call us at 646-494-3590 and tell us about all of your old moves. Um, we're, we'd also be curious to know about the weirdest porn search terms that you've ever entered and if you actually watched the videos that came up afterwards. And that's it for Sex Lives this week. Thanks, Dr. Jesse Baring, for joining us. Thanks to Maureen for calling in from Mexico and Allison for calling in from upstate. Uh, Sex Lives is produced by Sam Dingman. Thanks also to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. See you guys next time, and thanks for listening. <laughs>